Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Nate, and this is Timeline Tapes. It's a podcast for me and the team on the YouTube channel, Timeline, and we're dedicated to bringing you the best in world history documentaries. We know you don't always have the time to sit down to a whole movie or series, so we're turning our shows into podcasts that you can listen to wherever and whenever you'd like. This episode is the first in a series called Battles Won and Lost, which takes an in-depth look into critical moments in war and how the victors became the victors and the losers, well... The show, this one looking at World War II, focuses on not just the grand scale of events, but the personal stories within. And narrator Peter McCallum is there to guide us along the way, and I'll be appearing throughout to help. The first battle we focus on is from the invasion of France in 1940. We'll hear from Dr. Ben Mercer from the School of History at the Australian National University, and Dr. Peter Stanley from the Australian Center for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society. In August 1914, Germany attacked through Belgium. The attack failed, and the conflict turned into a war of attrition, which Germany was never going to win. In May 1940, Hitler gambled. The war in the West would end quickly, or he would follow the Kaiser into oblivion. Hitler is very interested in invading very rapidly. It's his generals and the Wehrmacht army that is very reluctant to invade France quickly because, of course, they're thinking of the First World War and this is likely to take four to five years. So there's a lot of emotional attachment to the idea that this is the First World War, but this time Germany will win. Plan Yellow had designed a German thrust along the lines of the opening offensive of the First World War. But Plan Yellow had fallen into the hands of the Allies, which created the opportunity for General Erich von Manstein. Yes, France was ready to be plucked. The whole force of the Nazi might was turned toward the West. How would they strike this time? Through Alsace-Lorraine, as in 1870? Through the Low Countries, as in 1914? What was the 1940 model conquest? Manstein's plan proposed an alternative route, outflanking the French defensive Maginot Line, not by marching through Belgium, but by crashing through the forest of the Ardennes. 
the French are expecting Germany to come in much the same direction as they did in the First World War, and this means that they're in a quandary relatively quickly because they haven't actually planned or prepared for an attack through the Ardennes forest. First Army Group under General Biot and including the British Expeditionary Force faced the Belgian border. Second Army Group, General Pretola, stood on the Meurs behind the Maginot Line and centred on the old battlefield of Verdun. Between them, in a rear position, was the 6th Army, General Touchon. The defensive alignment of the Allies clearly revealed the gap that the German assault would exploit. The French military philosophy that they're taking into this war is really concentrating on holding a defensive line, creating a stalemate on the northeastern front, and not turning to offence which is really what they retrospectively probably should have done. Facing them was Army Group A, General von Rundstedt. The two sides were evenly matched. The Allies had 3,000 tanks to Germany's 2,500. But the Germans had an advantage in aircraft and troops on the ground were very similar in number. But the German victory turned that apparent parity upside down. It was crushing. The battle began on May 10th, when German parachute troops secured Dutch bridgeheads and glider-borne commandos took the Belgian fortress at Eben Amael. The 12th and 16th armies, built around armour, crashed through the forest of the Ardennes, and the French 9th, shifting south to meet the threat, disintegrated. On May 12th, the leading German unit crossed the Meuse and stood on French soil. Within a day, the Dutch army was being ordered to fall back on the line Amsterdam, Rotterdam, Utrecht. The Netherlands was soon out of the war, and the German 12th and 16th armies, having crossed the Meuse, were threatening the Allied rear. And for the second time in 25 years, the Allies rushed to Belgium's aid. Movie-turn cameramen shot these vivid impressions on the eve of what may well be the greatest battle in history. Within four days, the Allies were falling back from Belgium. On the 17th, the French were defeated at Sedan, and their Prime Minister telephoned his British counterpart to say, we are beaten. It can't have happened so soon, Churchill said, but it had. The Germans were into open country, sweeping up behind the Allies. The main criticism you can really make of the French army is that they're slow at reacting to a new situation. Um, and this is one area where it seems the German army is faster. Some of the tank groups which move to the channel go well beyond what they're supposed to do. They're getting orders to halt, they're getting orders to stop, to let the rest of the troops come catch up, um, but they don't do it. A young commander named Irvin Rommel pretended to have lost radio contact so that he did not have to check the forward surge of his 7th Panzer Division. On May 18th, he reached Cambrai before being ordered to halt. 
When the attack resumed, three commanders, Rommel in the north, Reinhardt in the center, Guderian in the south, smashed through to the coast. The Allied force had been divided. And with the 6th and 18th German armies moving forward, the Allies were being pressed on two fronts. Once the Germans do break through, the French don't really counterattack mainly because they're in a defensive mentality whereby their idea is that the best thing to do is to plug the holes in whatever line they have, fall back and act defensively. And this also creates further problems and if they're creating a defensive line they tend to spread out their tanks. Um, whereas if you're going to have offensive counterattack you bunch them together and once you've spread them out it's actually difficult to get them back together in time to, to counterattack. On May 25th, Boulogne fell. Calais two days later. The day after the British had begun to evacuate the forces trapped at Dunkirk. And the day that King Leopold offered the Belgian surrender. At the beginning of June, the Germans turned south, smashing through Allied resistance on the Somme. The following day, June 10th, Italy entered the war as an ally of Germany. Three days later, German troops entered Paris. This had been the dream of the Kaiser in the last war. Hitler achieved it. On June the 16th, less than six weeks after the offensive had been launched, France sought an armistice. The French government has capitulated. 22 years ago, a great marshal of France received the surrender of the German army. Now his former colleague, another marshal, signs abject terms of surrender for France. Though Hitler himself rejected the description as a silly word, the world of warfare had learned a new term. Blitzkrieg. Hitler sent large contingents vastly superior in training and equipment a country about the size of Maryland affords a new test tube for the accelerated Nazi warfare. Blitzkrieg is a really interesting tactic because it doesn't just work tactically, it works psychologically. So, for example, everyone has this impression that the Germans had, uh, invaded France in, in panzers, in powerful tanks. In fact, most of the German tanks were little better than bulldozers. They weren't nearly as powerful as, as the French tanks that opposed them. But those tanks weren't just fueled by, by benzene, they were fueled by, by some sort of weird psychic projection. And it said, we will defeat you. The tactics that facilitated rapid advance were not ad hoc. They were systematic and carefully calculated. Artillery and aircraft went in first to prepare the ground for the assault. And aircraft worked in close support of the advancing columns. Spotter aircraft, the Fiesler Stork, the Junkers 88 dive bomber, and morale-busting Stuka. Stukas dive bombed the French positions. The screaming sound they made didn't just destroy the French soldiers' bodies, it destroyed their minds. It said, we're, we're targeting you. The commanders of the Anglo-French force made mistakes, and they worked with inherited mistakes that had failed to anticipate mobile, mechanized warfare. In France, the French army manned the Maginot Line and waited. Impatient by nature, the Frenchman persuaded himself that Hitler never meant to attack. 
did Hitler, the French army rutted on its feet. The fall of France has to be seen above all as a victory. It was a victory for a bold strategic plan, grand in concept, efficient in detail, and effective in deployment. For initiative at all levels of command and for effective weapons designed for their coordinated roles in such an offensive. The invasion of France may have been the most decisive victory ever to fail to win a war. Now it's time for our next battle, the Battle of Kursk from 1943. Our expert on this one is Dr. David Stahl, author of Operation Barbarossa and Germany's Defeat in the East. After the fall of France, with most of Western Europe under Nazi control, Hitler turned east, invading the Soviet Union. By 1943, he faced a dilemma. The invasion of Italy was imminent. The Second Front would follow, but the greatest part of his force was still deep inside Soviet territory. Hitler looked for a decisive action that would allow him to withdraw troops to face the threat in the West. The battle, of course, basically arises out of the last stages of the Battle of Stalingrad. When the Soviet winter offensive began in 1941-1942, Stalin is really overextending his reach. He's attempting to do too much. And that's exactly what happens at Stalingrad. Yes, the Sixth Army has been destroyed. Yes, the Soviet forces have driven into the Caucasus and into the eastern part of the Ukraine. But as they keep trying to attack, Munstein, the commander of Army Group South, is falling back on his centers of supply and resources. He is able to build an operational reserve, and then he is actually able to strike back against overextended Soviet forces. If the Red Army could be dealt a hammer blow, then, and only then, could Hitler consider transferring divisions from the Eastern Front to meet the threat in the West. The ebb and flow of the fighting had created a bulge in the Russian line, a salient. The Kursk salient is essentially named because the city of Kursk is in the middle of this bulge. And to understand it, it's a very large bulge. It's 250 kilometers north to south, and it's about 160 kilometers in depth. And the basic idea that Munstein has is, after this success, this counteroffensive against the Soviets, he sees an operational opportunity. If we could pinch off that salient, there would be an operational success there. But the window of opportunity is quite short. And so, Operation Citadel took shape. It's clear, too, that Hitler has massed his tanks and planes and men and thrown into this sudden onslaught just about the heaviest weight of material and manpower of any battle on the Eastern Front. Von Manstein's Army Group South would carry the battle. Von Manstein planned for Walter Modrell's 9th Army with a 1,000 tanks to attack from the north and Hermann Hoth's 4th Panzer Army, 1,200 tanks, to swing from the south. They would meet at Kursk. But pinching out the Kursk salient was an obvious option. The Soviet hasn't been taken by surprise. For weeks, to judge by their air raids in the neighborhood of Orel and elsewhere, they've been expecting a German push on the Kursk salient. In anticipation of the attack, Stalin placed Central and Voronezh fronts under two able commanders, Batutin and Rokossovsky, at the mouth of the salient. Hitler delayed the Kursk offensive scheduled for May the 4th. He had an increasingly passionate, possibly desperate belief that the war would be won by the wonder weapons and wanted more of the new heavy tanks sent to join the battle. 
His commanders knew that as they waited, the Soviets too were increasing their strength. Stalin's decision had been to stand on the defensive. Some 300,000 Soviet civilians are being mobilized to build these defenses. They will dig some 9,000 kilometers of trenches. They will have anti-tank ditches and anti-tank traps. They will have underground bunkers. They will have thousands of mines per square kilometer. And they're building them on the shoulders in the north and in the south, anticipating that the Germans will attack into this. The great battle opened on July the 4th, a huge coming together of armor. 900,000 German troops with 2,500 tanks faced 1,300,000 Russians with 3,000 tanks, 20,000 pieces of artillery, 6,000 anti-tank guns, and 1,000 Katyusha rocket launchers. A bombardment by air and artillery began the German offensive. Engineers moved forward at night to clear minefields. After smashing through the Soviet lines, the two great German armies would power on, join up, and trap a huge Russian force in the Niptov salient. But that didn't happen. After 48 hours, the Germans had penetrated a little over 10 kilometers in three sections of the Soviet front. Hoth's formations made a strong push forcing the Russians to send reinforcements to hold the advance. But progress slowed. By the 9th, Hoth had advanced at best little over 30 kilometers, with significant losses. On the 10th, he was obliged to bring up his reserves. In the north, Modal was less successful than Hoth, his furthest advance being barely 20 kilometers. And on the 11th, Zhukov and Vasilevsky counterattacked. Russia's reply to the opening of the attack was powerful and prompt. On the 12th, the Soviets brought their armored reserve, the 5th and 6th Guards tank armies, to Prokhorovka. What followed was a massive clash of mechanized forces. Prokhorovskoy Poboyshki, the Russians call it. The slaughter at Prokhorovka. It is really a material battle and a successful one again. But the Soviets are going to lose 330 totally destroyed in Prokhorovka and another 200 made non-operational. These are phenomenal losses and the Germans suffer a tiny fraction of that. And why is that? Partly it is the story of the Tiger tank and the Panther tank. These new tanks have much thicker armor, they have much more powerful main armaments, and for example, the Tiger can engage the T-34, the standard Soviet tank, at far greater ranges. Therefore, it can destroy them before they're even in range. It's in some ways a battle, in some ways it's a massacre for Soviet armor. 75% of the Red Army's armor and 40% of its manpower was committed to the battle. As the tanks had crashed into Prokhorovka, the Soviet West and Bryansk fronts north of that battlefield had also moved, threatening the rear of Model's army. The next day, facing a growing crisis with Allied landings in Sicily demanding reinforcement, Hitler called off Citadel. Germans were wiped out in tens of thousands, tanks in hundreds, yet the figures in the Soviet communiques still mounted. It's very costly to the Germans, even more costly to the Soviets, 
So in that sense, it's a tactical victory, you could say, for the Germans, but these things don't equal the one thing the Germans need, which is extremely high operational successes to balance out the superior Soviet production and access to manpower. By now, only one side could rebound from such a contest. Rather than free divisions for transfer to the West, Hitler's gamble had sacrificed men and armor that he could not easily replace. Panzer General Heinz Guderian said that for Germany, Kursk was a decisive defeat. Kursk is important, and Kursk is the end of the German initiative on the Eastern Front, but in some ways it's the end of the German initiative on the Eastern Front because the Soviets themselves realize it's in their interests to let the Germans exhaust themselves on fixed defenses before they begin a much larger counteroffensive that will carry through the rest of the summer right into the autumn, seize enormous tracts of German territory and destroy a lot of German equipment. By July the 15th, the Central Front began to move. Two days later, the Southwest Front advanced, and by mid-August, the battle was over. The Russians were at the outskirts of Kharkov, and the last German offensive of the Eastern Front had come to nothing. From now on, Germany would be on the defensive all the way to Berlin. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome back to Timeline Tapes. Now it's time for us to assess the raid on St. Nazaire from 1942. We'll hear from Dr. Dean Peter Baker, who is also from the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society. 
The rapidity with which the Third Reich swept over and imposed the rule of occupation on such a vast part of Europe encouraged a form of warfare that had been little practiced, operations behind the lines. But the Second World War gave a real impetus to the formal organization of special operations. Units formed and trained specifically for such actions. Churchill, as a young man, had been a war correspondent and a soldier in the Anglo-Boer War in South Africa. He'd been very impressed with the highly mobile forces of the Boer opposition. He wanted something along those lines, small raiding forces that could strike at the Germans, but without requiring massive forces. And so he ordered that these units be created. He gave them the name of the Boer units in the Boer War and he called them commandos. It was such units, commando units, that carried out the raid on Saint-Nazaire. It was called Operation Chariot. Concern for the safety of merchant shipping was behind the raid. Britain, so long in receipt of the bounty of its vast maritime empire, was, despite vigorous wartime efforts, dependent on imports for much of its essentials. There were two main threats to the Atlantic convoys. One were the U-boats. That was the biggest threat. Anti-submarine devices have improved and increased, but so have submarines and the Allies can never have too many escort ships to hunt them and destroy them. But behind them was the German surface fleet, and particularly their four major battleships. They operated out of bases on the French coast and importantly, from one base with one very significant feature. On the night of the 27th of March, an obsolete naval destroyer, HMS Campbelltown, and a specially created commando force attacked the naval base at Saint-Nazaire. Their objective, the dry dock, the Normandy dock, which could accommodate even the largest of German battleships. If they could decommission the facility, any Axis vessel in need of repair would be forced to make the much longer journey north. The location was problematic, not on an open stretch of coast, but tucked into the estuary of the Loire, with narrow channels confined by shoals, making the approach to the dock easily defensible. But British intelligence learned that the most powerful German capital ship, Tirpitz, was about to join the Kriegsmarine. The plan was to ram Campbelltown into the dock gates and detonate the time-delayed explosives hidden on board to render the dock unusable. It was an enormously risky plan. The port itself was heavily defended. The um, attackers were outnumbered something like eight to one. The defenders had heavy coastal artillery. Even on the way there, it was risky. The task force faced the danger of U-boats, and in fact, at one point, the escorts had to pull away from the Campbelltown in order to chase away a U-boat. 
They were also at risk from the air, from the Luftwaffe, so it was highly risky and surprise was absolutely essential. But the strong and clearly alert German defences rendered useless all of the small boats that had been the commando's intended means of escape. They were forced to fight, and they did. They managed to blow up the dock, but it came at an incredible cost. Almost two-thirds of the force that carried out the raid were either killed or captured. So it was, a, it was an enormously costly operation. It did, however, have the intended effect. Tirpitz never did relocate from her base in Norway, and so the Atlantic convoys were protected from that potential threat. Almost one in four of the raiders received some form of gallantry award, and the highest such award in the British Army, the Victoria Cross, was awarded to five. Many rewards for gallantry were presented by the King at a recent Buckingham Palace investiture. Commander Ryder received the award for exceptional valour and devotion in the raid on Saint-Nazaire. Apart from achieving the immediate goals, the raid had other important effects on the war, one of which was simply to massively boost British morale. It came at a particularly dark time when Singapore had just fallen, and so it was really important from that aspect as well, but also it outraged Hitler. He was enraged by, by the audacity of this attack. And he ordered the construction of 15,000 heavily armed and heavily fortified bunkers along the Atlantic coast to prevent raids of this kind in the future, which of course had the effect of drawing resources away from the Eastern Front, which was very important at that time. The success of Saint-Nazaire added to confidence gained from amphibious actions off Norway particularly the Vagso raid, and the British were encouraged. They planned more ambitious raids. An amphibious assault on Dieppe was approved and codenamed Jubilee. Now we're looking at one of the most notorious battles from the Second World War, the Battle of Iwo Jima from 1945 featuring Associate Professor Wayne Reynolds from the University of Newcastle, Australia, and Joe Ruggiero, who served in the U.S. Navy. Yesterday morning at 2.41 a.m., General Jodl, the representative of the German High Command, and of Grand Admiral Dönitz, signed the Act of Unconditional Surrender to the Allied Expeditionary Forces and simultaneously to the Soviet High Command. The war in Europe was over. Everyone realized perfectly well that although the German war was over, the Japanese war was not. There was only one possible outcome in the East, but the fighting continued. On the Asian mainland, a great Japanese offensive in China had been checked, and Japanese troops had evacuated Burma. In the Pacific, the steady, island-by-island -island approach to Japan itself was continuing. It had been decided by the Allies that there be a sustained bombing campaign of Japan before an invasion, for obvious reasons. This is essentially the, an extension of the strategy in Europe. To do that, Okinawa and Iwo Jima had to be taken. They were forward-staging bases, 
B-29s, although they had been in a position to fly over Japan before, but they could now be concentrated. And most importantly, P-51s, long-range fighters, could escort the bombers. So by getting that close to Japan, it would multiply the effect of the Allied air offensive. The Japs had spent years fortifying Iwo Jima, for as distance goes in the Pacific, it lies right on Japan's doorstep. More than 1,200 kilometres south of Tokyo, one of the volcano group of islands, Iwo Jima, has an area of just over 20 square kilometres. In early 1944, Major General Tadamichi Kuribayashi and the men of the 109th Division had been sent to turn Iwo Jima into an impregnable fortress and to defend it. Kuribayashi was seen off by the emperor in person. He was not expected to return to Japan. On the morning of February 19th, the first wave of the men of the 3rd, 4th and 5th Marine Divisions landed on Iwo Jima. If their losses were too great, the Pacific strategy may have been thrown into doubt. The Japanese had a way of making uh, underwater swimmers strap a bomb on their head, swim underwater and bounce their head into the ship. And we had to stand over the rail with rifles to shoot them as they were coming towards the ship. Marines of the 4th and 5th Divisions went in towards the beaches under covering fire from their own ships, but also under heavy fire from Japanese batteries in well-concealed rocky positions on the volcanic island. Kuribayashi's plan was to hold fire until the beach was congested with Marines and all their equipment. Kuribayashi decided that uh, he would dig in, he would not contest the landings. So in that sense, uh, it was a different sort of battle. He only had 22,000 troops and most of those were to die, but uh, it was highly effective. The Marines were ready for suicide Banzai attacks, but these did not come. Kuribayashi, who believed them to be wasteful, had forbidden them. Iwo Jima was a tough battle because of Mount Suribaki. They were bombarding it, but they weren't making any progress because of the tunnels that were dug there. As the battle ground on, the Japanese grew short of food, water, and ammunition. On February 23rd, Marines reached the top of Mount Suribachi, and six of them hoisted the flag, and Joe Rosenthal took one of the war's most famous photographs. Taking Mount Suribachi, of course, is now the symbol of uh, an American flag raised so close to Japan at such great loss. So it plays well in the American narrative. The flag rising over Iwo Jima is really the American flag rising over the Asia-Pacific. The taking of Suribachi was not the end of the fight. Japanese positions held out in the north of Iwo Jima. And it went on for a month. Uh, on 22,000 on a pinpoint island, so uh, three marine divisions, virtually the entire marine corps, and then they had to grind their way to the other end of the island. So that was a fight from Yotawa. In the end, the Japanese did resort to the Banzai Charge, finally closing the battle for Iwo Jima on March 25th. On the 27th, 
General Kuribayashi committed suicide. Taking the island had cost the Americans 6,800 dead, more than a third of the Marine Corps dead for the whole war. 216 Japanese had been captured from a garrison of 22,000. The others were killed in battle, committed suicide, or hid in the caves from which they were painstakingly prized in the years ahead. The last surrendering in 1949, when they were finally persuaded that the war was over. Moving on from Iwo Jima now, it's time to look at the Siege of Tobruk in 1941. Our two leading voices will be Dr. Carl James, who's a senior historian at the Australian War Memorial, and Dr. Garth Pratton from the Strategic and Defense Studies Center at the Australian National University. Tobruk mattered. It was the best port for miles in either direction. And it was a key to the supply of the armies in North Africa. So if you're thinking about the vast coastline of the Mediterranean, Tobruk is important because it has a deep water harbour. By possessing Tobruk, it meant that a military force freed itself up from having to transport its supplies, its ammunition, its fuel all the way from Tripoli. Going back the other way, it meant that if you were advancing westward from the direction of, of Egypt, that you could bring troops, uh, supplies, ammunition forward. So it really lessened the, the reliance upon the roads as a means of conveying logistics. The first phase of the war in North Africa had gone badly for the Italians. But things changed after they were reinforced by their allies. The Germans landed the Africa Corps under the command of Erwin Rommel. Tobruk was held by the 9th Australian Division, General Leslie Mooreshead. Meanwhile, a new flag was hoisted by the Aussies, making it perfectly clear as to whom the place now belonged. Mooreshead was ordered to hold the port for eight weeks. He held on for five months. At the end of March, Rommel began to move. The Africa Corps engaged and drove back the British 2nd Armoured at Merzabrega. The Italian Brescia Division advanced on the left flank through Benghazi. The German 54th, supported on the right by the Italian Ariete, moved south of the Jebel Akhtar for Mekili, where on April 6th, the chaotic nature of the British withdrawal was highlighted by the capture of two generals, Neem and O'Connor. On April 11th, Rommel began to attack Tobruk, which had been reinforced by sea with the dispatch of an Australian infantry brigade and a few tanks. Churchill's decision to support the defense of Greece had weakened the Allied position in North Africa. Force W, four divisions strong, had been dispatched from Alexandria in March. But Mooreshead had organized his command effectively. And Rommel's first assaults on Tobruk were repelled. If Mooreshead and his garrison could hold out, that would be a victory. Holding Tobruk was key to the outcome of the war in the desert in 1941. It split Rommel's force, he had to fight on two fronts, um, besieging the garrison as well as pushing towards the Egyptian frontier. 
So long as the Royal Navy controlled the Mediterranean, Tobruk could be resupplied and defended forces rotated. The Australian 9th was relieved while the city was still besieged. Rommel was inclined to ignore Tobruk and drive on to the canal. But because the port could be resupplied and reinforced, leaving it in his rear was hardly an option. But his attack failed at great cost. The key to the successful defence of Tobruk was really down in many ways to the aggressive attitude of its defenders, particularly Major General Leslie Morshead. In addition to having a very strong outer line, he also pursued a policy of defence in depth. And what that really means is the soldiers went out every day digging trenches, laying minefields, placing barbed wire, so you could build up the internal defences. Although Tobruk has had a pretty good bashing, it still holds out. More than that, it's a real thorn in the enemy's side. Major General Paulus, who would find unwanted fame as the defeated general at Stalingrad, arrived to review Rommel's actions and initially allowed further attempts to break through. Although Moreshead proved adept at swinging his limited forces to meet threats, the Axis had, by early May, overrun his first-line perimeter defence to a depth of almost five kilometres. Despite the success, Paulus refused requests for the attack on Tobruk to be renewed. The defenders didn't know it at the time, but they had had a victory. The German decision to step back from Tobruk and create a defensive position at Gazala was one of those orders intercepted by Ultra and decoded at Bletchley Park. It encouraged Churchill to order Wavell, commanding the Allied force, onto the offensive. But his forces were not yet strong enough. Thrust to Solom and Halfaya met counter-thrust, and the British were pushed back over the Egyptian border. Tobruk remained besieged, under air and ground bombardment, for 241 days. Tobruk held out. The Allies knew that Axis troops would halt at Gazala, so they began planning for the relief of the port. Now for our last battle of the episode. We're looking at Operation Crusader from 1941. Our experts are once again Dr. Carl James and Dr. Garth Pratt. The first Tobruk relief operation, codenamed Brevity, was launched in mid-May. It failed. The second, Operation Battleaxe, followed in June. It also failed. Which led to a change in North African command. The new British commanders began planning for a new campaign. Operation Crusader. One of the outcomes of the experience of brevity of battle acts is that the British start to look at the way that their forces are structured. They start to learn, particularly from their enemy, from the Germans, the way that they combine armour and artillery. You see the concept of the brigade group becoming the standard mid-level organisation for the, the British and Commonwealth forces in, in North Africa. And that brigade group is formed around three battalions of infantry with attached armour, 
with its own artillery support so that you have a much more um, balanced combined arms force. By November 41, the Allied force, reorganised as the 8th Army, outnumbered the Axis with more men, more tanks and a three-to-one superiority in air power. The 8th moved from its defensive position in two corps. 30th, which had most of the armour and would draw the Africa Corps into battle. And 13th, which would move to and along the coast. The garrison in Tobruk was ordered to effect a breakout to coordinate and link up with the advancing troops. Whilst these British plans were being formulated, Rommel was planning a new assault on Tobruk. By chance, the British moved first, launching Crusader at 0600 on November 18th. The Tobruk breakout was to follow on the 21st. Leading the 30th Corps, the 7th Armoured Brigade advanced northwest for Tobruk. 22nd Armoured Brigade covering their left flank, followed by the 1st South Africans. 2nd New Zealand Division of the 13th Corps made its advance with the Indian 5th covering the right, advancing to Bardia. Rommel believed that Bardia would be enveloped and initially sent Africa Corps to meet the challenge. But he soon realised where the threat lay and turned them to the relief of Sidi Rizé, where the airfield had already fallen. British armour now started to suffer badly from the panzers, and particularly from one of the most effective weapons of the war. The Germans in particular were well served by the 88mm anti-aircraft gun. It wasn't originally designed for use against tanks, but it was a high-velocity gun which was found to be very effective once dug in at destroying the, the, the British tanks. I remember they were losing tanks like mad to the 88s. In fact, uh, so I watched a German 88. It fired six shots and burned up five tanks. The toll on the Allied force was tremendous. By late on the 20th, 4th Armoured that had advanced in support of 13th Corps was below two-thirds of its original strength. But Rommel was also faltering. He was starting to run short of fuel and ammunition. The next day, 70th Division inside besieged Tobruk made the breakout. When our big push in Libya began, the Tobrukers broke out too. Now they set out to join up with their comrades of the 8th Army, to raise the siege, to cut off Rommel and his panzers to clear the Germans out. The 7th Armoured, scheduled to move up in support of the breakout, had reports from patrols of enemy armour and was obliged to meet this threat. By the end of the day, the 7th had lost 130 of its 160 tanks. Rommel now switched his attack. This manoeuvre became the famous dash to the wire. The wire being the Libya-Egypt border. What we need to remember at this point in time that Rommel is a very long way from his main source of supplies. So his drive to the wire really taxed his, his forces. It didn't manage to achieve what he wanted to do, but then given that 
he was now short on fuel, he was now short on ammunition, he was starting to lose tank strength through maintenance issues. He then had to start falling back. By now, the 70th out of Tobruk had linked up with the New Zealand division advancing parallel with the coast at El Duda. Failing to deal with this, Rommel was obliged to fall back on the defensive line he had established at Gazala. Tobruk had been relieved, and though it was ultimately an inconclusive victory, it was one that the British were happy to trumpet, their first land victory against the Axis since the war had begun. It shows British and the Commonwealth forces are still fighting against the Germans, we're not giving up. And this is important to show to the Americans that, hey, don't write us off. We're still in this war against Hitler and Mussolini. Don't forget us, we're not a spent force just yet. Rommel continued his withdrawal, and the operation ended when Bardia fell to the 8th Army on January 17th. While all this was happening, the war was changing in far more significant ways. Japanese aircraft had attacked Pearl Harbor. The war had become global. And Britain now had a new and very powerful ally. Thanks for listening to Timeline Tapes. Next week, we've got even more battles won and lost to delve into. If you can't wait until then, you can visit our YouTube channel, where we've got hundreds of hours of world history documentaries for you to watch. If you want to reach out to Timeline Tapes, you can email us at timeline at little.studios.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Those are both at TimelineWH. If you enjoy this show, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And if you can, give a five-star rating and write a review too. I've been Nate Fisher. This has been Timeline Tapes. Let's go down in history together. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.